If you have a Bible or access to one, please open it now to the book of 2 Samuel. Our reading and teaching or preaching is based on the reading of 2 Samuel verses 1 through 11. Now, you know that I usually try to take an entire chapter in a series like this, but there is so much in the first 11 verses that I don't want to gloss over and want to talk about in some detail, so that's why we're only taking the first 11 verses. Um, And so, with that said, hear now the word of the Lord from 2 Samuel chapter 2. After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, To which shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the town of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. When they told David it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul, your Lord, is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over into or to Mahanaim. I think that's as good as I can do with it. And he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have the Bible, that we can open it freely, and uh, that we're interested in it because you've been gracious to it. And we ask you now to open our eyes and open our hearts. Give us a teachable Uh, responsive heart soften us so that we may hear what you say to us today and give us uh, much grace in our willingness not only to hear but also to obey and this we pray in Christ's name amen you know once in a while when you're looking at a book in the Bible it's a good question to ask yourself where are we and so I think it's a good question to ask especially in a series of sermons in a biblical book, such as the books of Samuel, first and second. Here's where we are. Saul, who has been king for at least a good 15 years, is now dead. 
And Saul was the king who constantly persecuted and had hostilities toward David. He's dead. The Philistines did him in. Jonathan is also dead, David's best friend and most loyal supporter. And other sons of Saul are dead except for Ishbosheth, who we will hear about in a moment. The Philistines have right now the upper hand because they won the battle. And while they haven't set up any kind of what I would call regime, they're still present, still have influence in the area. David is in Ziklag, literally in exile. He is outside of the land. He's not in the land that God promised uh, to Abraham and to his people as he brought them out of Egypt. And so David is in exile, and after the death of Saul, there would naturally occur a power vacuum. When you don't have a leader, people get nervous, and people want a leader, and so there's a bit of a power vacuum going on here, especially with the Philistine presence. And so Saul's death uh, not only brought an end to his kingdom, but it opens the door now for the renewed kingdom to take place under the leadership of David himself. And so we're sort of at a position here of suspension and waiting uh, with bated breath to see what's going to happen. And so chapter 2 records for us several episodes from the early part of David's reign. Um, first, David goes to Hebron to be anointed as king over Judah. He was the king God had chosen for himself. Thus, he was a man after God's own heart, meaning God chose him to be king. Saul was the people's choice. Saul fulfilled exactly what uh, God had prophesied through Samuel, that you want a king like the nations, and Saul was a living picture of life under the king like the nations. He took and took and took and took even more. And so now the opportunity presents itself for David. But I struggle with this. There's so much in the Bible. You know, as I said last week, Mark Twain said, it isn't so much what I don't know about the Bible that bothers me, but what I do. But I struggle with what I know because there's mystery everywhere. Why would he anoint David as king? In 1 Samuel 16, 15 years of Saul pursuing him, trying to eliminate him from the scene, why that long period of time? And now we're going to see David finally become a king, but he's only a tribal king. He's only a, a warlord over a tribal king in Judah. Significant, yes, but not all Israel. And so he's only seeing a partial fulfillment of his kingdom. And so it would have to be frustrating to be David to know that you had been called and set apart and set aside to be the king over all Israel and yet only see bits and pieces of it occurring under such struggle and such hostility. Well, why? Well, I don't know that we have a satisfactory answer totally other than to say kings need character formation. And some of the things that David learns during this time of exile and ziklag and plus all the times of Saul's opposition to him and attempts to destroy him for no reason, no uh, reason at all, 
um, sort of sets up the idea that David had much to learn before he would be uh, equipped to learn to lead the people of God. Maybe you're in a holding pattern right now. Maybe your life isn't going exactly like you planned it. Maybe you, uh, you're like me when I went to plant a church here in Las Vegas and another one in New Orleans, Louisiana. I had it all mapped out. I had it all planned. I had everything set up as to when it would occur. And I came in and in like six months, my whole plan dissolved. Why? Because God does things his way. And there were things I needed to experience to equip me to be the pastor I am today. And so we're in a hurry. Philip Brooks, the great preacher of another century, was pacing in his hotel room one night before he was speaking in a church in a city. And a man came in the room and said, what are you pacing the floor for? And Brooks says, I'm in a hurry. And God is not. God's never in a hurry. He's always on time but he's never in a hurry. And so it must have been frustrated if you were David to go through all of these experiences. But he is the king whom God has chosen for himself. David and his reign foreshadowed the kingdom that God will ultimately establish through the Lord Jesus Christ. The kingdom uh, came, announced, and finally established in the life of Christ and ultimately the consummation of the kingdom that will come into the world. And so David's kingdom is a picture or an adumbration or a foreshadowing of the kingdom of Christ. Sometimes I wonder why the first century interpreters didn't look at David more so to understand the messianic character by the way his kingdom came incrementally. They didn't, maybe because they didn't have the New Testament. We do. Uh, they got it, but they didn't like it. So the earthly reign of David is a token by which or, or a lens through which we can see the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ, the salvation of his people, ultimately to the end of the ages. Now there's three things I want us to think about this morning regarding the reign of David and ultimately the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. First, the kingdom is inaugurated. That is how the new kingdom begins. We'll see that in verses 1 through 4a. Then we will see how the kingdom is extended, how David uh, related to those who were his enemies. We'll see that in 4b through verse 7. And then we'll see the opposition uh, uh, to the kingdom and how the new king was opposed uh, to David. And so let's jump right into the text, looking at point number one. Uh, there's a great significance here in uh, this chapter. And the great significance is, after this, David inquires of the Lord. Actually, he asks of the Lord, and he's, it's a pun on Saul's name, oddly enough. Saul means one who asks. David actually did the asking. Saul would forge ahead with vigor because he had no access to the Lord. He had no priest to go to because he killed them all. He had no communication from the Lord, but David does. David's smart. When I went to plant a church in uh, Louisiana, 
Uh, I uh, was at a hotel, um, I think it was a Holiday Inn, we had the conference room and we'd sent out a lot of information to get interested people to come. And there might have been 30 or 40 people there who were interested. And I thought it was a good time to sort of lay out the vision and philosophy of ministry and sort of what this church would look like, what we, would, what we believe, uh, where we were going with it. And I thought that was probably the best I had ever presented it in my entire life. And immediately a woman stood up, raised her hand. And you know what she said to me? She said, well, that's real interesting what you think you're going to do when you come here, but what is God going to do? I thought, you're never coming to this church, are you? So, and I tried to explain to her that I presupposed the fact that I had prayed through this and sought the Lord's help. Oddly enough, that woman did become a member of the church and a contributing member, but she was a little hostile in the beginning. But it's never wrong to inquire the Lord. It's always right to pray. It's always right to seek him before we make decisions. And here David does it. It's not just a rote thing that you go through. When you're making any life decision of any weight, you should be inquiring of the Lord. You should be asking him. One of the ways I do it, if I'm not supposed to go through this window or door, please slam it in my face because I'm blind, hard-headed, and, and uh, need that kind of treatment. And so David does this exactly opposite of the way Saul begins his kingdom. And so David uh, emphasizes the fact that going to Hebron uh, was because of the word of the Lord. But Hebron is a loaded city in the history of redemption. And this might answer the question why he goes there and not to Jerusalem. Verses 1 through 3 emphasizes the fact that going to Hebron was for David in some respects an ascension. It is 3,000 feet higher than Ziklag geographically and topographically, but it's also a resurrection. Remember, David had been in exile, and to be in exile was like to be in hell, to be cut off, to be dead, to be separated. And now, because God sends him to Hebron, it's like a resurrection. It's like a return from exile. And David goes to Hebron, uh, very encouraged. He goes up to Hebron. Hebron used at least five times in these three verses. And so David went up to a land, uh, and he's moving from exile into the land. His uh, going up means he's being raised up and at least exalted in a measure. Hebron was the largest city in the area, and it was associated with the patriarchs of the Old Testament. The only piece of ground, Abraham, who was promised a land, the only piece of ground he ever owned was a burial plot in Machpelah, which is sort of a suburb of Hebron. Uh, at Hebron, David became, as it were, a clan chief, the tribal leader over Judah, and the men of Judah anointed David. Later on, in 2 Samuel chapter 5, we'll see him be, being anointed over all Israel. This is a significant part of God's unfolding purpose and plan for which he made the world. Uh, the New Testament passages tell us that this purpose 
is to bring all things under the lordship of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Unlike Saul, David was chosen according to God's own purpose. In that sense, he was a man after God's own heart. And so David's ascent to Hebron was, as it were, a, an exaltation in obedience to God's word. But think about this for a moment. David going to Hebron, and Hebron was where most, if not all, of the patriarchs were buried. Uh, Abraham was buried there. Sarah was buried there. Isaac was buried there. Jacob was buried there. Their wives were buried there. And I think the intention of the author, because of the context of covenant and that milieu, was saying that David himself falls into the line of the covenant. Even though we haven't gotten to the Davidic covenant, which will occur in chapter 7, here already we're seeing the continuity of God's purposes for his people being fulfilled through the choice of Hebron being the initial place. David is already being underlined. What I think is the great theme of the Bible, at least one of them, it's not the only way to conceive of the whole Bible, but one of the ways to look at the Bible is God establishing his kingdom by way of covenant with his people. And this is what we see happening here. And so as a type or a foreshadowing, David is being represented as one who continues what God is doing in the Abrahamic covenant, fulfilling the promises he made regarding seed and land, and ultimately adds to it the idea of a Messiah and a king. So David foreshadowed the one highly exalted by a path of submission and obedience to the Lord, very much like what's said of Jesus in Philippians 2, where it says, uh, Jesus, who being uh, God himself, humbled himself and became a man, became a servant, and uh, as a servant, he obeyed the Lord and then was highly exalted to the right hand of God after uh, experiencing the death and the horrible death of the cross. And so David, his act of submission and obedience and going to Hebron, his elevation, again, is points to the reality of what really happened in the life of Jesus Christ. He did not grasp the kingdom through selfish ambition as Saul, but obedience to God was the pathway he took, the pathway of ser uh, service. Hebron itself was 17 or 19 miles southeast of Jerusalem. And so the key to the significance of Hebron is it pointed to the, this regal figure, this messianic figure, the anointed one, David, going to the place of ultimately his kingship. But the second act of this particular chapter has to do with extending the kingdom. And here we see in David, through experience of life in those years, at least 15 years of dealing with Saul and his uh, insanity, is that David acts with real wisdom, what I call gospel savvy and gospel uh, cleverness. His first act after becoming king. Now, think if you were a king... Most kings began their rulership by what? Eliminating everybody 
who had any connection to the guy who was before me. My friend's enemy is my enemy, or that is Saul's friends are my enemies because Saul hated me. Saul was disgusted with me. And yet, when you look at the text, it's amazing how David responds to these men from Jabesh, who I would call Saul's loyalist. These are the people who went and took the body down so that it wouldn't be abused anymore of Saul and Jonathan, brought them to town, gave them a proper burial, and David is deeply moved by that. Because he understands that these people probably were thinking, if this is the coming king, and everybody was thinking that, he's probably going to come and destroy us because of the kindness we've shown to Saul. And yet, on the other hand, he does exactly the opposite of what they were expecting. He commends them. He praises them. He says, you have really glorified God in your treatment of Saul because David always respected Saul and the office and he said you have really brought glory to God because you've demonstrated what God demonstrates to his people kesed emet that is love in kindness and faithfulness And you've done that, and I commend you for that. And I'm telling you that I'm coming here as one who has been anointed king over Judah, and I will be good to you. He doesn't threaten them. He does it in a very winsome, a very uh, gracious way, which is exactly how Jesus saves us. For Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5, verse 10, that while we were enemies, Christ died for us. We were enemies toward God. Now, you may be listening to me today, and you said, but with all due respect, Pastor, I've never really been an enemy of God. And uh, the best that I understand Scripture, the description of the fallen human heart given to us in Scripture, that is, the heart that has not yet been made new by the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, is one of antipathy and hostility toward God. And you can see it in people who are not believers. You can also see it in people who are believers. But a real resistance, a real hostility, a real suspicion, or even an anger toward God. And yet, what did God do? While we were yet sinners, hostile toward him, Christ died for us. He came to save us, not because we were his friends. We were his enemies. You see, what Jesus did on the cross was he did something for you that you could never do yourself. He rescued you. He accomplished for you everything that's necessary. As far as salvation goes, you and what you do as far as works and obedience is totally obliterated. Jesus came and lived in our place in obedient life to what God requires of people to live in fellowship and have a relationship with you. Jesus did that not to add to whatever righteousness I have. I don't have any. I'm bankrupt. Uh, The scripture says all our righteousness is as filthy rags. And so Jesus lived the life God requires a person to live in order to enter heaven, to be clean, to be holy, to be righteous. He did that. But what did he do about our failing to do so? The guilt we have accrued, the condemnation we deserve 
to be banished forever. The enmity in our heart, what did Christ do? He went to the cross and took upon himself the sin of every person who would ever believe in him, and God punished that sin in the body of Christ and offers to you, just as David did to these Jabesh Gileads, the good news of the gospel. The gospel's not good advice. The gospel is the redemptive story in Scripture of God coming to save his enemies. Your response to that is to repent and to rest and receive him. And so that's the good news of the gospel. And David, again, is a picture of that in his interaction with these people. He commends them. Um, he, he tells them what they should do. He says that they should be brave and valiant. And we never know from the scriptures. Later on, the Jabesh Gileadites are mentioned, but we never really know exactly how they responded to all of this. But David's message to the people of Jabesh Gilead was wonderfully like the gospel offer in which the grace of God was offered to his enemies because the one who held their allegiance is defeated and Jesus has begun to reign though the parallel is not exact it never is in typology the message of grace is clear the only way God saves sinful people is by grace there's nothing you can do, nothing you can add, no bootstrap you can pull up. It's not solo bootstrapus. It is God himself coming and accomplishing for us, redeeming, saving, all verbs that God does. The only thing we do is receive it. Have you done that? Have you received the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and the Lord of your life. Have you turned from your sins? Have you repented? Have you returned to him and received from him eternal life? As a result of the experience of the new birth, you are now able to exercise faith and repentance in him. You want to come to him, and you realize that there's nothing standing in the way other than our unbelief and our hostility. But through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, anyone can be saved. Anyone who wants to be saved can be saved. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You didn't know David was pointing toward that, but that's what David's pointing to. And then finally, the opposition. There's always the loyal opposition. And David meets it. Here, we're told that the people of Jabesh-Gilead responded, and we will, or we're not told how they responded. We will hear of them again, but we learn another powerful man in the north is on the move who did not want David to be king. Now, if I was David, I would be thinking, oh, I finally got anointed in the Holy Land. Here I am in Hebron. The anointed has, uh, anointing has occurred. I've been recognized by the elders of Judah, the tribe, and now I'm on my way to the kingship. And not, I mean, there's, there's a little bit of an overlap of time. Let's say David was king at least for three and a half years before this anointing took place, but it was a very small contingent 
of the people of God, of all Israel. And so up north, there was Abner. And Abner and David have a history. They knew each other. They knew each other well. They had many interactions, and if you'll think about it, you will know, as I mentioned, some of them. He was a, a powerful man who didn't want David to be king. Abner was cousin of Saul. His father was the brother of Kish. Abner was a loyalist to Saul his entire life. Oh, excuse me, he does change later. By his side, he was by Saul's side when David killed Goliath. He had a place at the table as well as David did when he was uh, in the kingdom with Saul. David and Abner knew each other. Abner was influenced by Saul and his resentment and hatred and bitterness toward David. David, if you remember, rebuked Abner uh, because of action taken. Uh, he had taken Saul's uh, water jar and spear in the cave, and Abner was obviously asleep and, and didn't protect him well, and so maybe that was sticking in his craw as well. After uh, the death of Saul, Abner took action, and in verse 8, Abner installed another king, the son of Saul. Now, these people had a history, and after uh, David is anointed uh, king in Judah, Abner witnessed Saul's acknowledgement even of David's future, but Abner did not accept it. He wanted to continue the line of Saul which would be the normal way to do things in the ancient Near East. Thus, he rejected David and anointed a son of Saul. And his name is real interesting. Probably his name originally was Eshbal or Ishbal. And by Baal, I mean B-A-A-L, which sets off into your mind immediately the pagan deity. But in reality, in the language, it meant Lord, Master, or King. And so Ishboth is the man who is Lord, Master, or King. But his name got changed to Bosheth. It's kind of like uh, Bocephus, huh? Bosheth. Some of you don't even know what I just said, do you? You don't even know who Bocephus is, do you? Watch uh, Ken Burns' documentary on the country music and you'll know if you can stand to go all the way through it. Uh, but Bosheth, you know what Bosheth means? Shame. He went from son of Baal. Some think maybe the editor, uh, the Deuteronomistic, you'll have to ask uh, Ken Turner the right way to say that, editor may have changed the name from Baal to uh, Bosheth in order not to confuse the worship of the false prophets of Baal who Elijah chopped up. Um, in reality, this guy was a man of shame. He, only, he was only king for two years. I don't think he was a real strong presence necessarily. But it's very interesting how this happens. And so there's a rival kingdom. The man of shame is king over all Israel. David did not receive the welcoming that one would think his anointing would happen. And this all happened at Mahanaim, 
which literally means two camps. It's the place where Jacob uh, divided up his family into two camps before he met Esau. And Abner came along and anointed um, Ishbosheth at Menmahanaim, and Israel became two camps. Thus, maybe even hinting at the future of the division of the two kingdoms. David was in Hebron seven years and six months, and the anointing of um, Abner happened in the last two years of his time there. These events provide us with an opportunity to think about the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our King Jesus has begun to reign, not in Hebron, but is in heaven. You see, what the kingdom of God is, according to Scripture, is the powers of the age to come penetrate the present time, and the powers of the age to come bring about a whole new creation. Totally eschatological in its view, but when Jesus ascended into heaven, at the right hand of the Father, he gave the greatest gift he could ever give to the church. He gave the Holy Spirit, who came on the day of Pentecost, indwelt believers as the temple. Their bodies were the temple of the Holy Spirit. The church itself is the temple of the Holy Spirit, changing that imagery. And then the Holy Spirit ushers in regeneration and new creation. Therefore, if any man be in union with Christ, he is a new creation. And so the powers of the age to come, the kingdom, have already been inaugurated, just as David was already inaugurated yet not yet fully coming. That in the present era, we live in the tension between the kingdom of God inaugurated and the not yet of the kingdom coming. And in that overlap, we struggle with our Abners as well. We live a life of struggle as Christians. Struggle is not abnormal, it is normative. As I read my Bible, particularly in Romans chapter 8, if you don't find yourself struggling in this world in living for Jesus and in understanding your own sanctification, struggling with your own sin, struggling with the relationships, struggling every way possible, I'm not sure your eyes have been opened yet. Struggle is characteristic of this present life. And when will it get better? I remember this uh, young woman who went to her first Bible study in the church, and she was of a different generation than the ladies who were studying it. So she went, she was excited. She said, these women are older, they're experienced, they're wise, they got their act together, they're going to help me in my little struggle in the beginning of my Christian life. And so they're all there, and they go through the Bible study, and then it comes to a time of questions, and everybody asks their questions, and this young woman, trembling, raised her hand. And so the leader of the study said, yes, what is it you would like to ask? And she said, when will my life not suck anymore? I'll tell you when. When you die and go to be with Jesus or when Jesus comes and you're transferred, not until. Now, I'm not trying to say that that's everything about your life. There will be moments and periods of joy. There will be rejoicing. There will be celebration. But there will be times where you will struggle. 
And that's because though the kingdom has come, it has not fully come. One day, as we see in the book of Revelations, the covenant will be fulfilled in its ultimate sense. The people of God and God himself will be their God and the new Jerusalem will come down from heaven and all of what we anticipate being the, uh, the complete new heavens and new earth will be fulfilled. Then and only then will heaven be heaven in its ultimate sense. So in the meantime, we struggle in the nasty now and now between what has already been accomplished. But look at David's life. He's a picture of that. He doesn't get the kingdom all at once. And when he does, you'll see. So I close this morning by saying, these events provide us with an opportunity to think about the reign of our Lord Jesus. He is exercising God's Good purposes. Uh, he is having his preachers. You know, even though I have a strong appreciation for the sovereignty of God and the doctrines of grace, you cut me, I'll bleed that. But Paul tells us, and there's nobody like Paul in the book of Second Corinthians, that we are ambassadors with, for Christ. And our responsibility in the meantime is to persuade others to come into the kingdom to woo them, to plead with them to come into the kingdom. Even enemies of the gospel, even enemies of God, we are called to do that. You know why you don't want to do that? Same reason I didn't want to do it. The reason why I didn't want to do it is because not only were they enemies of God, they were my enemies too. When I first became a Christian, some well-intended brother put his arm around me. He said, now you need to change your friends. He said, you need to start coming to church. God's got a whole new set of friends for you. And so I said, okay. And after about a week, I didn't have a single friend left because I told them all about Jesus and what had happened to me. And they dropped me like, I don't know what's going on with Posey. That's what they said. I don't know what's going on with Posey. To this day, when some of my high school classmates see my younger brother in my hometown, they ask him, is Tim still religious? And I told my brother to say, no, he's a Christian. He believes in the grace of God and salvation. So when was the last time you pled with anybody or wooed with anybody or sat down and had a heart-to-heart conversation with anyone? It's so hard to do in our culture at this time. When was the last time you told anybody about Jesus? When was the last time you mentioned his name? When was the last time? So, there are, at the same time, Christ at the right hand. But there are many Ishbosheths in our world right now calling for our allegiance. That is, alternative kings seeking our allegiance. And Jesus said, no man can serve two masters. He will hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. Which king is your king? Is your king Jesus? Have you submitted yourself to him? Do you live in submission to him on your knees in your heart before him? Grateful that he is your friend, your brother, your savior, your Lord, your life everything. What a glorious God we serve. Let us pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of what we see in this passage. And we know that uh, as we look at this and look at ourselves, that we are needy people. Uh, we need help from outside of us. We can't fix it. We might know it's broken, and we might think that there's steps we can take to fix it, but we will soon learn that it's vanity. It's just futile. We cannot fix ourselves. If we could fix ourselves, Jesus would never have needed to come. But we can't, and he did. And so I pray you'll draw us to yourself. Now, Lord, as we continue to worship you, may we give as people who have tasted and seen that you are good. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.